We're going to continue our study. We're in the common service uh, produced by our Bishop James Heiser. And last week we took a look at, uh, took a little side note as we noted that the uh, 1786 hymnal uh, that uh, Henry Melchor Muhlenberg uh, worked on, that he worked on the hymns. Um, and even though as he was getting older, uh, he had to hand over the work of the new uh, hymnal and, and agenda book, nevertheless, uh, his work on the hymnal... Was, was fabulous, did a great, great work. Uh, he went on through, and, and we had some of the things that uh, that he talked about and concerning it, uh, and in particular, we ended up with uh, the paragraph that talked about uh, the emphasis on the return to the hymnal, the hymns of the day, particularly the Kern Glider, uh, um, the chief hymns. We saw that uh, where there was Orthodox Lutheran teaching, there was, corresponding with that, liturgical uh, services uh, that, that we followed the liturgy, they followed a one year lectionary, they followed the hymn of the day. We saw that in America we were still regaining at least the hymn of the day, and I mentioned to you about Ralph Gierke was one who had helped to restore that. Um, most of these hymnals that we're talking about, we're talking about on the East Coast, remember, and, and we're getting to what the General Senate, we'll see what, what they did, which was, uh, which was not historic Lutheran worship. Um, Yes, uh, later when we're going to see with the German immigration, uh, you had a better outcome going on in Missouri and Ohio and, and some of these. The only kind of bright spot was the Tennessee Center. We'll be getting to that uh, a little bit later. But talking about the return to this hymn of the day and uh, that in addition to having uh, an epistle and a gospel reading appointed for each day, that there might be a hymn of the day. Now, again, that was a uniquely uh, Lutheran endeavor. Uh, they wanted to restore the people's part to the liturgy. And so, uh, although the hymns had been sung in the matins and vespers, the morning and evening services, in the divine service itself, again, the, the Roman idea was that it was a sacrifice. Therefore, the priest who uh, was the one who was offering it up, and the people came and watched primarily, uh, um, is, is what you had. Um, even when uh, Rome, after Vatican II, tried to uh, uh, get uh, uh, the Roman church singing, they put a song later up in front and sang at them for a while, and I know that, that uh, they, they didn't like that <laughs> at all. Um, but they're coming along. Uh, with and and they actually will sing hymns like a mighty fortress and things like that, which is kind of interesting. All right, so that gives you the hymn of the day, and we talked about the hymn of the day. Um, you also found, as the hymnals went on, uh, rather than having the hymns that went with the services itself, or that went with Advent, Christmas, Lent, 
you saw that also start to go away, and then you started to have uh, hymns that dealt with morality, that hymns that, you know, these kind of Christian life, um, and, and that's, that's what happened with it. Um, so anyway, we are um, uh, kind of mentioned that, we kind of went forward with that. I want to uh, give you two more things in connection with hymns, and then I want to kind of keep going. First of all, um, you know, it was it was asked last time about well, um, you know, that just because a hymn was in 1545, that doesn't make it right or best or you know what, what about that? And uh, and that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, we're, we're not, there, there's not a perfect age. There's not a perfect time. There are better ages and better times. <laughs> and you can see that. Um, there were times when there was a golden age of music. There was a golden age of the church. There was a golden age for painting. There was, uh, um, and so... You have to understand, not only did the society and the training and the culture and prepare them for those kind of things, but also God does not bless everybody equally. And so uh, I know that, you know, I was taught as a, as a young child, you know, um, you know, anybody, you can be president, anybody can be president. At some point I went, you know, that's really not true. Um, and, I mean, technically that's possible, I guess. You know, according to a couple rules in the Constitution, but uh, no, no. Um, you know, I'm about two million dollars short and a whole lot of prestige, and I live in the wrong part of the country. And you know, I'm sorry, you just—that's not the way it is. And if you want to say, you know, anyone can write a hymn, that's true. You know, but not anyone can be a Bach. God provided one of those, and you know, there are times in which you have to say. Okay, Lord, that's what you provided. Um, and, and we have to rejoice in the gifts. There are some that are a whole lot smarter, a lot better, that have more skills. And, and we, we just don't have those um, today. Um, we've not... I always hesitate when I'm going to go off a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, we've aborted millions. You know, there may have been a Bach or two among those, you know, I'm sorry. You know, we've not done real well in teaching. We've not done real well in supporting. But that being said, so when we get to the hymnody, where, what area are we in? Well, yes, of course, there is right and wrong. You can have false doctrine. You can have whatever. And we're, I'm setting that aside. I'm assuming we're, we're in, this, in the realm of, of teaching the truth. But what hymns you choose you got five hymns, and they're all Orthodox hymns. That's the matter of Adiaphora, as we've been taught. But in the matters of Adiaphora, it doesn't mean that anything goes. Now we begin to ask questions like, well, it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of what would be better? And then you have to have some ideas. Are we talking about better in teaching? Are we talking about better in, in uh, musical ability and in, in its presentation? Are we talking about um, uh, teaching the faith? 
those are the areas that we have to take a look at. So I want to present you just a little bit. I'm going from a, a, a book uh, called Commandment to the Hymns. Um, it was written for the Lutheran Service book. Uh, I've already mentioned for you that it talked about here. It says, despite the, and it gives a couple of, the liturgical significance, that is, how it points and teaches us about the liturgy itself. And if you're going to have a liturgy, and a one-year series, and you're going to follow that, Bill, it ought to agree with that. You want to do something different. The catechetical benefits, as it catechizes or teaches the faith, and the broadly established practice of the De Tempore, uh, hymn of the day, hymnody among Lutherans, we found that it was the influence of pietism and rationalism that really decimated this whole thing. So why should we give a, a look at this? And why should we follow this? And, and, and I would say, you know, since I have been here, we have. I mean, you, you, we have had a hymn of the day. Um, Leanne, I give her the hymns ahead of time. I'm always marking the hymn of the day. Almost every time it's put right there. There's occasional times I'll move it to the front and we'll, we'll have some. But I've also uh, been teaching the hymnody where we go through a hymn for about four to six weeks in order that that might be established practice. I hope you can kind of see maybe some of the reasons why we've done some of the things that we've done. But let me read a little bit because I think this is really helpful. Lutherans give such careful attention to hymns because they are a powerful teacher of God's word and an eloquent means of confessing the Christian faith. Their poetic and lyrical qualities and musical accompaniment make them ideally suited to catechesis. Hymns are more easily remembered than almost any particular sermon or classroom lecture. The use of the appointed hymn of the day serves these purposes in a way that helps overcome, note, the weaknesses and avoid the idiosyncrasies of an individual pastor or congregation. So, your pastor and or your, uh, uh, your predilection towards those kind of things, uh, this can help us to not simply, well, these are, five, these are the five pastor's favorite hymns and we pick them all the time. Or he particularly likes whatever, and so those are the kind of hymns that we always have. No, we get the full overview of the Word of God, the full amount of teaching, because that's the way the, uh, it does it. The hymn a day represents the accumulated wisdom of past generations and the concerned current consensus of our churchly fellowship. So, not only does it go back and go, hey, the church has looked at this and said, this is really good. When we do that, we put ourselves into that group. But it also says something about our fellowship. It says about something about who we are. It is part of our common confession. When all or most of our congregations make regular use of the hymn of the day, it not only reflects but serves and supports our unity in Christ. Because our hymn of the day list is deeply rooted in historical precedence, shares much in common with the corresponding lists of other Lutheran churches. It's broadly Catholic, serves the common Christian heritage. So it also shows when we're all using the hymn of the day together, you go, oh, those people agree in doctrine because see what they do in practice. 
And so, um, you know, there may be, and there are lists, they're not one that is just right and one's wrong, but finally someone has to decide what's going to be the list that we use and that we all go together with. You know, so this is something as we put together a, a, a hymn book. Patient use of the hymn of the day over time greatly enriches and expands a congregation's hymn repertoire. Many of these chief hymns belong to the solid core of the very, very best hymnody spanning the history of the church. Now, granted, some of these selections are more challenging than others, yet for that very reason, these hymns tend to promote and maintain interest, and they have a staying power that far surpasses simpler hymnity. Returning to these hymns each year helps to make them familiar, which serves the faithful with the steady comfort of the gospel. And so I, I also want to say, as we're kind of going through this, sometimes you, you, have, you, know, you, you have it in your brain that this is the way it ought to be. And so you look at this hymn and you go, well, this is a tough hymn, therefore, throw it out, it's bad. And then someone says to you, you know what, if they're a little more challenging, if they're simple, you sing it the first time, you go, oh, yeah, that's great. You sing it the third time, you go, yeah, I'm already getting bored. And by the fifth time, you can't stand it. Um, but if it's got a little more, it takes a little more to it, 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 it maintains your interest. And so, yes, it has this thing that makes it so that we remember it. It makes it so that uh, uh, we can sing it again and again. And so, you know, sometimes you have to kind of go, oh, well, maybe I need to look at that just a little bit uh, uh, differently. Especially in cases where the hymn of the day uh, may still be new or still unfamiliar to the congregation, care should be taken to introduce and teach it to the people in a way that encourages them to receive and embrace the hymn as their own. In the weeks leading up to its appointed use, the organist might introduce the melody of the hymn in preludes, postludes, and voluntaries during the offering or communion distribution. The choirs of the congregation can rehearse an upcoming hymn of the day in order to support the singing of the congregation when the time comes. So, yeah, there's going to be times when you don't know a hymn. Well, we're going to have to learn it. Um, yeah, I can throw it on you. Cold. Um, Leanne will have practiced it, but none of us will. Um, and it might not go real well, but after four or five times, you finally might get it, and, well, that's one way to do it. But we can have the choir start working on the hymns, which we've done. Um, you may not notice all, and I'll point out in just another time, all that our organist does in connection with this. There are many times that I listen to a prelude and I kind of go, yeah, I know what that is. We have books. We have, how many, 20? 20? No, 40, like 40, 41. She's got like 40, 41 books that have preludes, postludes that are based upon the hymn of the day and some of the hymnody, so that when she, granted, when it's just a hymn, and we're just doing but before and after, it can get your mind thinking about what this is all about. Or you may not even realize that she's playing through this so that it becomes familiar to your brain when we finally uh, get to it. So there's a lot of different ways, using a choir, uh, teaching it, and things. Historically, the gradual hymn. So... There was an epistle reading, there was a gospel reading, there we've got now our gradual that we use in between of those. Um, the gradual hymn, uh, 
Luther, as he was trying to introduce hymnody that the people could sing, the hymn of the day got stuck between the epistle and the gospel and was called the gradual hymn. Later, it kind of got moved after, uh, right before the sermon, after the creed. But the gradual hymn was often sung in alternation between the congregation and the choir. And that practice can still be helpful, especially in the case of longer hymns, allowing the congregation or part of the congregation to rest from singing or to listen on certain stanzas can help the people to learn, help them to appreciate the hymn. If the hymn is unfamiliar or more difficult, the choir might begin with the first stanza or two with the congregation then brought in to sing gradually as the hymn progresses. And so, these longer hymns, and many of these that are Lutheran chorales, and they pick them, um, you know, it, my wife was telling me the other day, uh, um, uh, my, my voice is a little older. Four or five stanzas, I do great. After that, I progressively get <coughs> trying to, you know, get it all, you know, 12 stanzas? Hmm, you challenged me, you know. Um, now, 25 years old, maybe not. Uh, the hymn of the day is also the first place for additional musical adornment, not only by the choir in alternation with the congregation, also by the way of choral descants. Instrumental accompaniment, such as those provided in the concertato settings, uh, the purpose of such musical adornment is to honor and accentuate the text. So also, with the text in front of the people, they say the organist may even present a stanza. Apart from any sing... Oh, I thought they were going to have you sing, Leanne. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I, I play through the whole hymn before we sing. Right before we sing, Almost. he does, right. They're giving an example where they say, you know, we could go through, we could sing stanza one, two, three. Stanza four could be without singing. She could simply play and we could look at the words and think it through and that, and then start with stanza five. I mean, it's possible. I don't know if that's the greatest way, but, you know, just to give you some ideas. Um, uh, where was I? Apart from any, another way for kind of reflect on the words and the discussion of the faith. The hymn of the day can also assist the piety and devotion of a congregation in the practice of daily prayer throughout the week. So I talked about these small hymnals and about how the Lutherans always sung this stuff at home. And so I incorporate those into our, our family daily prayers. Let's sing this hymnity. It may be helpful to people to know ahead of time what the hymns of the coming Sunday will be. Um, hey, here's what's coming up. Um, I do have somebody that I know that has asked me for those and takes a look at those before we get to church, especially upcoming end of the day. Some members will be able and inclined to study a text in advance, perhaps even practicing in one or more of the hymns in preparation for the divine service. Pastors ought to encourage and assist this kind of thoughtful approach to the Lord's day. In the weekdays that follow, using the hymn of the day at Mass, Vespers, Morning, Evening, Prayer, Meetings, Activities of Congregations, in the daily devotion of homes and families, it connects the lives and the vocations of the people to the Holy Communion of Christ in His Church. It teaches and confesses the faith in a lovely and endearing manner. Little children and adults may thus learn to know and love the hymns of the Church, and those hymns the Word of God and the Christian faith unto life everlasting. 
think that's a really good text to, to explain kind of, all right, here's what we're into. But look what this can do. Um, fabulous. What is, it? this may not be the only way that Lutherans can do it. I, I understand that. I understand that. But I'm going to say, let's take a look historically, and I've, I've already given you a broad history. Now we're getting the history of a hymnody and a common service. What have we found? Every time that the church begins to go astray, they begin to mimic the Protestant Reformed churches. So what happens? The pastor no longer preaches on the text for the Sunday. It becomes a five-point sermon series on 40 days of purpose. And we begin to, and, and uh, uh, pretty soon the pastor takes off his collar, you know. And pretty soon you have the altar, and it's no longer an altar, and it's no longer changed. And what happens? The liturgy has to go away, and you begin to slowly you replace parts of the liturgy. And then you don't even worry if there's parts of the liturgy there anymore, because you're doing something new, and you're doing something... Why does that always happen historically? And again, it wasn't a matter of solid Lutheran pastors and their congregations saying, you know, uh, um, society has changed a bit, you know, and we need to address some of these different issues. No, it was always pietism, rationalism, social justice, there was always something behind it that was pushing it. You know, maybe you can say that having, you know, this particular hymn is not right or wrong, but, wow, um, that's what we have seen has happened. And so, um, Karen, and then I'll get Tony. Yeah, I, I can remember, you know, brag on Eric just a little bit. When he was three years old, he's singing Up Through Endless Rings of Angels in the car. He decided that was his favorite song. And uh, that is not an easy hymn. But three, you know, that was what he decided was the best. I don't know if he still is your favorite, but um, <laughs> the time and you know, thrilling for a parent to see them grab onto it just by hearing it so many times. Of course, they memorize it just like that, you know, when they're three. So. Um, much right. of the stuff, much of the practical things that I did, I got out of books. I didn't grow up doing it, and I don't know anybody else that did it. But I read about that this could happen, and this was a good thing to do. And I can guarantee you that when I did it, people looked at me and went, you know, I think you're crazy. Um, you know, you're doing what with your kids? Um, but we found that it did actually work, and those were the things that, you know, it, it, it helped on. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Tony Prosco. Yeah, as a musician, I'm, I've been sitting here listening about the hymnal, and they're talking about everything <clears throat> except the music. How many of you realize that all the, a lot of these hymns are also put in the state of how music was at that time? The people of Bach's time and that would be Luther's and so forth, they had no trouble singing those hymns because that's what they heard. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that the chord progressions have considerably changed through the years, and you get into the 19th century, 
there with pietism and so forth. All of a sudden, I hear chords that just, ugh, that it's too sweet for me. <laughs> because I tend to like the older and so forth. And those things will fall away with misuse. You go to congregations and you don't hear my singing at all, the organ and the choir. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because the music they don't understand and it isn't in their lexicon. That's why the uh, the 7-Eleven songs works for the uh, reform. I call them Dick and Jane. Well, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can sing along with it if you've never heard it before. We've been to services, too, before where the organist is more putting on a concert. And it becomes all about me and not Christ. And that, that is a difficulty. Um, uh, in one of the things, I don't know if I'll get to it, I, I don't remember exactly where, where it is, but he's talking about how the, uh, uh, the organist is supposed to lead us to the words. That's, that's you know, the part. But, but he says, he says, now, you know, preludes are also always supposed to be a prelude to something, and postludes are supposed to point back, and interludes are supposed to, you know, if they're not designed... To direct your attention over to the choir or over to, you know, the organist itself and their abilities and over to, you know, no. They're designed to point you back to that. It's not about me. No, it isn't. Um, Now, some can be rather short. short. I mean, they add things. They put it. But it's always keeping that melody, keeping, you know. Mm -hmm. Anita. Those first couple of paragraphs or whatever, of that whole set there. That need is not being taught very well. Let's put it that way. It's, some of this stuff, yes, I knew, but yet that puts it so clear and plain. And these, because when you end up dealing with people, they will come up with all sets of uh, arguments. Why against this? But right there, it tells you what it's all for. And if it hasn't been taught, you sit there with your tongue in your mouth and you don't know what to say. And that is beautifully put out. Very good. <laughs> yes, Patty? I think you should print that for us. <laughs> okay. I can do that. I can do that. Um, in Ralph Gerke's book, Planning the Service, a couple other things with him that he just to kind of uh, point out. Once again, uh, he does talk about that golden age of church music, Reformation, post-Reformation age uh, that developed in Lutheran church. You also have, I mean, if you want a, a, a real good um, idea you know, when Bach puts together his cantatas, what does he do? Um, you know, I mean, it's fabulous. Um, he does not go into the church service and replace and do crazy things. But after the service, and especially in the afternoon, he's got a cantata. And, and what is there? There is primarily about four parts that go with it. One is he takes the hymn of the day and... He has it, you know, doctored up a bit, and, 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 and it's there. He's got a soloist who is singing either the uh, words of the gospel, which are the theme for the day, and he's got a couple other connected parts that kind of go with it and puts it all together. And, and he is living out of the church here. That's exactly what he's doing, and he's pulling this out of uh, the, the hymn, so that kind of the best of it. 
Um, antiphonal singing, once again, it kind of goes through this and all and, and continues to talk about how um, this gives us time to uh, think about the words. Uh, for those of you who have been to our Gregorian chant retreats that we did before, it was always you would sing a and then you would wait, and then another would sing another, and you would wait. And there was a lot of waiting, waiting while you listened to this responsive kind of singing. It allowed you to do this for longer periods. It also made it a little bit easier on your on your brain. Um, you know, even I would say uh, in between hymn stanzas. You know, when I finish the last word, and you automatically jump when we start the next. That, you know, I was like, whoa, that was, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted a little uh, uh, breath. Um, some of these um, electronic, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have the benefit of an organist, so they do it electronically. But they're so, according to the beat, that you, you finish that next one, and, and normally there's a natural break, rest, and then, then you don't get it, you kind of tell it. Um, but in the chant, you were teaching us to start right away uh, for the next whatever it's called. So but I in between, the, there was a break. Out. That's true. Did you get to that uh, hymn festival? And if so, tell us about it. Oh, she's talking about the... Oh, I did get to the hymn festival. Um, there was an organist. Um, the Southern Illinois Guild of Organists had a couple Sundays back uh, at Our Savior, and they had about five or six organists that played six or seven hymns, like an Advent, Christmas, Epiphany kind of kind of went through, and the congregation sang with it. Um, it was good. I was glad that I went. Um, I uh, and and they, they they played real well. I I ex <laughs> because of what it was, I kind of expected a little more showy. I expected a grand prelude, you know, to mm -hmm. kind of like some of these things. And it wasn't as much as I expected. So it, mm -hmm. it um, uh, sometimes they'll bring even a professional organist. It's not all for them about hymns and, and church. I mean, it's about the organ. But mm -hmm. anyway, it was, it was, it, it was pretty good. Um, uh, down towards the bottom of this alternating uh, thing, it talks about, you know, it can sing all the stanzas of dear Christians, one and all rejoice, without destroying the magnificent unity of its thoughts by cutting off the upper four or five stanzas. So again, maybe we ought to think about it a little bit different and say, okay, well, how can we do this? Um, whether it is between the Chiron congregation or whether it is between the men and the women or right and left side or whatever, if that helps. Um, moreover, such antiphonal singing will lead the choir away from the mistaken idea of beautifying the service with added selections. And it will lend it toward the great ideal of performing a genuine service to the congregation as a liturgical group, which is ready and happy to help the congregation toward all the blessings of the genuine worship. So sometimes there has been this idea that, well, the service is fine, but we need something to beautify the service or spice it up. So let's get the choir. We'll bring them in to do some piece, what, you know, whatever piece you got, throw it in here. Let's put it, you know, after the boring sermon to wake us up and we'll all be happy and that'll make everything good. Rather than the idea of the theme of the day, 
the service to him uh, putting it with it. It says, no, there's a, a, a different way uh, of, of, of looking at this. Um, looking at... Can I just comment on that? Yes, you might. So when I first started directing the choir, I probably did exactly that. I found fun pieces that were really pretty, and um, some of those things I think I need to go through our our uh, library of choir music and just throw them away. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, I look back at them. So, but it's it is difficult because there are so many wow. And as a choir, you really love singing. We love singing four-part harmony. The ornateness is very beautiful, and I'm not going to say ornateness is bad because we have it in our church. We have a beautiful altar. We have beautiful banners. You know, we beautify our church, and God did that in the Old Testament. Oh, my goodness, the ornateness of Aaron's robe. So ornament is not bad. It's just we got to make sure that we're always pointing toward Christ. And so, as Leanne said, um, there's a balance there. You know, we don't want to paint our walls white and take out every ornament in the church. We don't have to take away every ornament in the music. But just be careful that it's always pointing toward Christ. You know, we grab onto themes of the of the Sunday rather than just singing some cute tune that I happen to like. So it's it's hard though. <laughs> it is very hard. I'm just thinking she's saying we don't want to get distracted from Christ. Exactly. By anything. Yeah. Yeah. But there's yeah. a fine line. Yeah. Well, and it, and yeah, it takes a lot of work. But God gave us beauty in this world. It, it takes a lot of work, too. There, there, there are times that my choir director and I will talk. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes she will say to me, um, I've got this, I got this choir piece. Um, when can we sing it? Which, which is a good question because there's appropriate, you know, I've got five, six, I got six Sundays in left. We're, we're, we're okay, but you know, I'm, I'm always kind of going, oh, last Sunday would have been the greatest Sunday to sing yeah. that. <laughs> um, you know, rather than going, okay, you know, I want to come and say, hey, I've got a Sunday. <laughs> Here are the themes. <laughs> You know, pick a hymn, that, pick a song, pick a choir piece, whatever it is that goes with that. That takes a lot of work. That's a bit more difficult uh, to do. So, uh, Tony. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on what Karen was saying. Some of you may have, uh, know the name Palestrina. In the Catholic Church, they got so much stuff added to make the Mass beautiful that the Pope finally says, you're bringing in the whole string orchestra. And when he brought in the timpani, that was just too much. <laughs> well, it's amazing that this, you can always find some lady with a beautiful voice who'd love to sing a song, so they would add that. And when we were, last time, I think it was in Belgium, honey, when we went to a church, after the service, they put on all of this. The organist had beautiful music. They had a gal come up and sing. That's the time to do it. Not during. Got to be careful. You want to make it so beautiful that it distracts. Very true. Um, I was looking for, I guess I didn't uh, put on the sheet for you to look at up on the board, but um, 
Ralph Gierke also goes on talking about the primary function of the choir is to lead the congregation in the singing of the liturgy and the hymns and to sing the propers of the liturgy when they are beyond the capacity of the congregation. Um, and, and he goes on to talk about this. Okay, um, we're going to move forward just a little bit. Uh, as we are on our uh, book, we got done kind of with this hymnody part where this hymn book that they're putting together in Muhlenberg uh, uh, kept the hymnody pretty good. As it goes on, though, however, there was a notable deterioration which was already transpiring in the rite. We're talking about the liturgy. And the hymnody, there was also some. The deterioration present in the 1780s <coughs> rite was painstakingly described by, and this is by Bill Schmucker a little bit later in 1882. So 100 years later, he's looking back at this and saying, hey, when uh, Muhlenberg said, let's get a hymn book and the, and the liturgy, here's what he wanted. And about four years later, when he was getting a little bit too old and they were appointed a couple other guys, um, ben, Benjamin... Oh, I don't remember the guy's name. Anyway, they appointed a guy who was into revivals and, you know, uh, 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 revival songs and, and crazy stuff that we've talked about before. And so uh, uh, there was a change before it got printed. Throughout the service, uh, as he goes on, he wants to say, okay, let's take a look at this. You have your hymnal in front of you so that you know what I'm talking about. I noticed last time as I was going through and talking about things, I would refer to parts of the liturgy, and you kind of went, um, Pastor, what, where, which part of the liturgy is that? Because some of them have Latin names and some of them you don't quite remember. Open your hymnal up to page 136. Okay, uh, This is the liturgy that we use. It's pretty close to the common service. Um, uh, it's almost... The same as page 15 uh, in TLH uh, that we would have. But so that as I go through, I can show you what was different in this 1786 hymnal. So, Bill Schlecker, here's what he says. He's taking a look at the right and said, yeah, it was changed a lot. You tell me how, how you know, what you think. Throughout the service, the specific directions of the pastor to turn his face towards the altar or to the people are omitted. Now, you won't always find that, like in our page 136. It is found in the pastor's book, okay, um, you know, which is called the Agenda. So this is the hymn book that the people use. You don't need to necessarily, but I need to have that, and it should be in my book. Yeah, all those were left out. Hmm, interesting. So that which was a sacramental, and that was the sacrificial part, well, yeah, we don't have that anymore. Hey, any suitable hymn is allowed instead of the invocation of the Holy Spirit. You'll note on page 136 at the top, a hymn of invocation. Invoking God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, a hymn of invocation uh, of Holy Spirit. This one says, no, just any suitable hymn is fine. Just pick a hymn. We're going to start the service. Next. It says, the Gloria in excelsis is omitted. Um, I noticed we went from A to C. Um, I don't know where B went, so I'm not quite sure concerning the confession. Now, sometimes it would be included after the sermon, sometimes here, um, but I don't know. Let's just assume it's gone. Going on over to uh, 
page 137, there would be an introit of the day, some psalm singing. Yeah, that's not in there. A Kyrie, yep, that's gone. Turn the page. The glory in excelsis, glory be to God on high. Uh, the glory in excelsis, it's gone. Now, it's normally gone for us during Lent, but this one, it's not even included in the hymnal. A voluntary prayer or a morning prayer is prescribed, and the collect of the day is omitted. So that prayer, which goes with the readings, the prayer for the third Sunday night, yep, it's just say a prayer. Say whatever prayer you want to say, say the prayer that you want to say. The announcement, turn the page, the announcement, oh, also the um, uh, salutation, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, that's gone. Turn the page, you've got an Old Testament, you've got an epistle. Um, the announcement of them, it simply says, here's where the epistle is, here's where the gospel. Um, there is no glory be to, glory to you, O Lord, or praise to you, O Christ, or responses. It's just the pastor reads, and we go on. Uh, the suitable, but there is uh, a reading of the gospel. They are retained, they're actually listed there. Um, which is a good thing, and some hymnals are they're not. The suitableness of the hymn to the season of the church is omitted. Um, just pick another hymn. Not necessarily the hymn of the day, or as it goes, just a hymn. The reading of the gospel at the altar is omitted, and it is read only in the pulpit. Alright, so, the epistle reading was read from the uh, left side of the altar, and the gospel reading was read from the other horn of the altar, from the gospel side, the right side of the altar. Um, here it says that the epistle, you could read it here, but rather than have the reading of the gospel here, yeah, we omitted that, and the reading of the gospel is only read in the pulpit. Now, you got to know a little more history to, in order to understand this. Um, there was an epistle, there was a gospel, there was a creed, and then when the pastor went into the pulpit, everybody stood up. Why? Because he was going to read the gospel a second time. And the reason he read it a second time was because that's what he was preaching on. And the pastor was supposed to preach on the gospel. So, the sermon text, and he would read the gospel again. The people would be standing up, and when he got done with the gospel reading, uh, then they would sit down and the sermon would begin. Well, what they did was, they cut out the first reading and said, fine, just read the gospel from the pulpit. That's good enough. Uh, the standing of the people at the reading of the gospel, yeah, that was cut out too. Uh, we, don't, we don't need that. Um, keep going, page 141, the creed. Yeah, no creed. That's left out. Um, uh, let's see, oh, I moved this up. Oh, the creed. Uh, omitted is the principal hymn of the day. No hymn of the day, uh, which precedes the sermon. I guess the sermon is kept. Uh, other texts are allowed instead of the gospel at the option of the minister to preach on. Another and much longer general prayer is used. 
I'm going to come back to that just a little bit because he's going to refer to that later. There was a general prayer that was listed in the book, about a page long. Um, When we got to these things, it was interesting that the general prayer, normally we see all these things going away. Kind of, oh yeah, cut that. Oh yeah, you don't want to be doing that, you know. Anything that had liturgical significance. But in this instance, it got longer. And instead of a one-page general prayer, in one of these books, Bishop Heiser describes an eight-page, eight-page general prayer that was longer than the rest, if you took the entire service, right, and the number of, it was longer than the whole rest of the thing. That's how you know you're really pious. Was that really a sermon? See, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, it, there's, it has to do with, with, Piety. Yeah, I'm, I'm a real Christian. I can stand up. Right. Long. Yeah. And and so also the and, and so what do you you often see at the time of Pietism these prayer books and prayer services and pra- I mean law extended you know kind of things. Um, all right. So anyway, um, another one. Try. The remainder of the service uh, when there is no communion is unchanged. <laughs> okay. Good. So we have you know. In the order for the administration of the Lord's Supper, there's no change, except in the words of, of the distribution. When, in giving uh, the bread, uh, instead of just saying that it would uh, strengthen and forgive you, but it would also, and preserve you, are introduced after the word strengthen. And in giving the wine, the minister says, this is the true blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ, shed for you for the remission of sins. May this, once again, strengthen you not just strengthen, but strengthen and preserve you. Uh, such were the changes made in just 1786. Now, we're going to see some of the others, but... Uh, yeah. How similar? My question is, why did they even bother with the hymnal? Because pretty well what's left is, you sing some hymns, you say some scripture words, and you preach... And then here's an eight-page prayer break. You know, um, right. And so you can kind of see this once again. We're trying to be as different from the liturgy as we can. We're trying to be individual. We're trying to be extemporaneous. Um, one can readily see how different such a service would be from that which is found in the hymnals from the received common service tradition of the Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book and the Lutheran Hymnal. Um, The 1748 liturgy had been so careful as to specify points regarding the ceremonial, even specifying the liturgical posture of the pastor, the location of the pastor when reading the lections. A spirit of individualism was given sanction to creep into the divine service so that free prayers preaching on self-chosen text and hymnody that did not reflect the seasons, festivals of the church could all begin to undermine the received tradition of the church. The deviation with regard to the general prayer was among the most subversive changes, for it was a harbinger of the unlutheran practices which have only become more prominent, predominant in the decades to follow. In the 1748 agenda, it had been specified, the sermon being concluded, nothing else shall be read than the appointed church prayer, here following, or the litany instead of it, 
by way of change, and nothing but necessity shall occasion its omission. Wide variety, and particularly extemporaneous prayer, soon became, as shall be seen, an identifiable mark of the decline. I'm going to come back to this, but I want to finish out, because we're just about at the end, and, and this will finish out this chapter. It was for all these reasons, and this is Bielschmucker writing a hundred years later, that he declared in conclusion, these alterations in the morning service are all of a piece. Every one of them is an injury to the pure Lutheran type of the old service. The chaste liturgical taste of the fathers has become vitiated. The accord of spirit with the church of the Reformation is dying out gradually. The service of the church in sinking toward the immeasurable depths in which afterwards it fell. The order of service is beyond comparison the noblest and purest Lutheran service which the church in in America America (laughs) prepared or possessed until the publication of the church book of 1868 alright let me just make a a note for you Um, in your uh, Divine Service 1, if you keep turning the page and you go over to page 144, after the uh, readings and uh, after the sermon and offertory, then comes the prayer of the church or the general prayer. In Lutheran worship, um, you know, this is what you have. Oh, I didn't list it up here. In, in, in Lutheran worship, this is what you have. You have the, in peace, let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy, with uh, then petitions that are made, and then it concludes with a, a prayer, kind of a one-paragraph prayer, that includes every general prayer. Well, you might know in the divine service, as, as I have done, in looking at this, I took those three parts of the church, I always connect it with the church the day. Uh, The first petition always deals with the gospel reading. Then we pray for the things dealing within the church, for the bishop, the pastors, the congregation, our uh, teaching of that to the children at the learning center. Then we have a section that deals with uh, the government and society, and we pray (laughs) for all those people. Then we have our own individual local uh, requests and prayers. And then we conclude with this. Um, that is the way it was lined out to, to be, and, and, and that's what we have followed. When they are talking about a general prayer of the church, if you turn back to page 132 and 133, and I have it up here on the board, this is uh, the general prayer. They moved it out of the liturgy itself, and they put it over here. It goes on page 132. Um, it also has prayers for the doctrine of faithful pastors, for all nations of the earth, uh, praying for all conditions of, of men and our rightful callings. Um, and then uh, those coming to the Lord's table, here you put special requests, and then there is the conclusion. It's the same one that, if you remember from TLH, 
you had that general prayer that was included, um, and and that's there. When he talks about the general prayer, uh, again, Lutheran worship, though they print it, move it off of there and gives the pastor options to uh, do what he wants uh, with that. Um, so that is what he is uh, referring to in regards with the general prayer. Um, once again, I'm going to tell you, is this a right or wrong way of doing it? Well, no, but I'm going to give you reasons why this general prayer is uh, uh, the way that we're going to move towards and, and uh, do, because I think there are reasons why it, it is better. If you're going to do it in this way, well, you know, uh, um, I tried to make it fit the liturgical setting and those kind of things. That's also uh, there, but you know, we're in this realm of how should we do this? If everybody wanted to do it this way in our diocese, we'd say, well, unity, and that's what we do. Well, if we're all going to do it according to the general prayer, well, then we ought to follow that. Uh, sometimes we have used the litany, as it mentioned. Um, all right, let me go on just a little bit so I can conclude this. And the lamentable shortcomings of the German service of 1786 were carried over into the first English service, as one scholar has observed regarding the 1795 hymn and prayer book. Attached to this book is a translation and a very close one of the liturgy of 1786. The points of difference between the two are such a minor character as to need no comment. So the German hymn books were pretty similar to what we saw in the English, at least out on the East Coast. The 1795 liturgy is a pretty sorry mess for the reason Schmucker identified in his analysis of the 1786 German liturgy. Almost none of the portions of the liturgy which are usually sung or spoken by the congregation are even present. The creed, any creed, is utterly omitted. In 1748, the German liturgy did use Luther's creedal hymn, uh, but then later they got rid of that. While the reading of the epistle is mentioned, there's not even an ex explicit mention that the gospel lection is even read, let alone that the pastor is required to preach on either of the appointed lections. So going back to some of the German and English you know, mentions about this. The portion of the liturgy for the celebration of the Lord's Supper is not as degraded in this German one, as the liturgy of the service of the word still retains the historic responses, for example, of the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, that's what that is. The exhortation, that uh, paragraph, about three paragraphs of telling the people to prepare for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer, the consecration. The formula for the distribution is properly retained and emphasizes the real presence. Take eat, this is my this is the true body. Take and drink, this is the true body true blood. So, not just strengthen and preserve, but actually saying here's what it is that I'm giving you. Luther's post-communion colic is retained, the Aaronic benediction is used, there's even an instruction that a proper communion hymn is to be sung. During the communion, hymns of the sacrament or of Christ's suffering and death are sung. And remember, the 1795 English liturgy was the most faithful English liturgy the Lutheran Church in North America would know for at least three generations. So, even though you saw the parts that were left out, and you saw what it was, that's about the best they had. It took 300 years before, or not 300 years, it took three generations before you would see a full liturgical service historic right um, again um, alright 
So that gets us uh, uh, done with that section. Any questions, comments? Anita? I was going to ask, who wrote all of the uh, music for the liturgy? Because I, have, I did a paper on yes. uh, the 1941 one, and it was an awfully hard time trying to find that out. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, the wife of the pastor. Crow? Crow? Yeah. Yes, Elizabeth Crow. Um, I think that's right. I don't know. Well, I'll get back to you on that one. But anyway, um, yeah, she, she was um, a fabulous musician and, um, uh, yeah, was the one that, that did the, the page 15 and what pretty well what we have in page 136. Um, same, same thing. Yeah, this talks about it quite a bit. Yeah, it does. It does. So we'll, we'll talk about that. All right. Pretty good. Let's conclude with the prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, in so many ways you have given us freedom in our worship, and we ask, dear Lord, uh, that we might use that to show our unity with one another, uh, that we would use it to highlight your Son and his redemption, his sacrifice for our sins, uh, that we might use the freedom that we have and in diligence to teach the faith uh, so that the people might uh, sing this in their hearts. We ask it all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.